and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined as always by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. And we have watched Jean-Pierre Melville's amazing 1970 film Le Cercle Rouge. Which is the second in the collection of his so far, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Of I think it's... Flambeur. Yes, which is kind of similar to this in yeah. some degree. Yeah, he likes his, his highest genre. Mm. But uh, by no means the last Melville will encounter. But, um, is it, did he, did, he did Le, uh, Le Samurai? Yes, and he is did. is that in the collection? Yep. Ah, good. I think that's the next one we do. I think that's in the 200s still, okay. so yeah. Relatively not far off. Yeah, I think it maybe is like number 240 or something, so not that, not that far off. Well, he's fast becoming like a real fucking pleasure. Oh yeah, for myself. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, you can definitely see why he's he's a kind of go-to filmmaker for a lot of modern filmmakers. People like Jim Jarmusch, uh, Martin Scorsese, Tarantino, and uh, you can kind of definitely see watching his films like where the, his influence lies. But um, Soderbergh. Uh, yeah, to some degree, I can definitely see that as well. Well, he did Ocean's Eleven, right? Yeah. And yeah. I feel like that has its influences from the above or Flamborough shit. Oh, 100%. But it doesn't necessarily carry through to all of Soderbergh's stuff. No. Whereas people like Scorsese and Tarantino, you can definitely see how Melville has just influenced their careers and their choices of stylistically making films. But um, before we get any further into the discussion, should we do a plot synopsis? Sure. You, you want to do this one or should I? <laughs> no, I think you can do it. I did the last one. Okay. Uh, so, basically, the film tells the story of a uh, man, Corey, who is released from prison. But on the morning that he's going to be released from prison, uh, one of his prison guards informs him about a upcoming heist or possible plans for a heist job he could pull uh, upon coming out. And then uh, once he's released from jail, he crosses path with, an, with another escape... Well, not another escape convict, but an escape convict mm. <laughs> um, uh, by the name of Vogel, who uh, they kind of team up and they plot with a... Uh, they gather a... <laughs> they join forces, I'll say. <laughs> with yes, yeah, so they, they, they come, become... They come in within each other's red circle. Yes. Uh, joining as well a alcoholic former police officer. Yeah. And the three of them pull off a massive jewellery heist. Yes. While the police continually hunt them down. Yeah. Uh, all as well as the mob tie-ins and all sorts of stuff. So. Yeah, there's, there's a lot going on, but... Yes. I mean, it's all kind of building up to the, you know, half an hour amazing silent high sequence. Yeah. Which is exactly like Rafifi. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Uh, so obviously, I mean, it's almost like Melville saw Rafifi and he's like, I want to do that. Well, apparently, like in doing the, the research for the trivia and things, um, Melville apparently wrote this idea back in the 50s and then ended up shelving it after uh, The Asphalt Jungle by John Huston and then uh, Rafifi by Dacine came out. He was like, ooh, okay, never mind. <laughs> and then kind of sat on it for like 20 years and then was eventually like, yeah. I, I think enough time has passed that I can kind of do well, this and I've and he's done enough other films and kind of perfected his style that this is a lot of people kind of consider this one his ultimate film in the sense that it like not ultimate is in his it was his second last film he ever made mm -hmm. but it's kind of everything he's been building towards in his career kind of culminates with this film well I can see on a surface level that they have their similarities oh yeah I mean obviously both have the the half an hour silent high sequence mm-hmm um, but I think what differs with this movie is there's much more of a focus on 
the nature of the characters as opposed to just this is a heist movie. Yeah. Whereas Rafi- I would yeah, I would say Rafifi is more centered on the actual heist. Yeah. Whereas uh, Le Cirque Rouge is more concentrated on the men who are doing the heist. Yeah. So you could consider Rafifi to be the traditional heist film. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think this one is a little bit more inaccessible. I think Melville likes to have his films be a little bit inaccessible. And, and this is sort of where I, I'd say it, it draw. You, this is where people like Scorsese and Tarantino draw influence from Melville, where it's, yes, it's going, this ends up being a giant heist film, but the key focus is on the people that are doing it, and we're going to spend, like, 70% of this film meeting these people, getting to know them, and then the heist just kind of is an incidental thing that these guys are doing. It's not... Like, to the point that we don't even see them planning the heist. Yeah, which is, you know, by today's standards, that's one of the pivotal plot devices of a... But Melville's like, that's not what's important with this film. Even though that is, like, the giant set piece and what we're building towards, what's important is these three men, who they are, their relationships, what they represent. Yeah. Here we go. (laughs) And that's set up with the the intro, which is a... Here's a quote from Buddha. Yes. Was it Buddha? Uh, no, it's uh, Krishna, I believe. I've got okay. it. Yeah, where yeah. is it? It is... Duh, duh, duh. Oh, no, yeah, no, sorry, you're right. It is credited to Buddha. Okay. Um, it's not real, by the way. Oh. Melville just made that up. So, the whole red... <laughs> people finding themselves meeting by destiny within the red circle is just... He just made it up and he attributed it to Buddha. <laughs> just to make it seem kind of cool. <laughs> That's kind of clever. Yeah, and he because did... he wants you to. I mean, it's an odd way to start a heist movie, right? Yeah. There's a fucking picture of a Buddha statue. Yeah. That kind of spins around, and, and then there's this kind of arty farty, weird philosophical thing that like men men meet each other within the circle, despite never doesn't matter. Like whatever their trajectory, they're always going to meet in the red circle, and it's fate. And yep. Like what the fuck does that mean? Where, where are we going with this? And but then, and then he, I feel he doubles down on that uh, when it's the quote from the. Um, I'm jumping way ahead here, but the um, internal affairs guy is saying, that, oh, God, what is the quote about all, all men are born? Oh, God damn it. Uh, they're bo- all men are born innocent, but it doesn't last. Yeah. And it's like the inevitable corruption and, you know, this hurtling towards an inevitability. Everyone is bad. Yeah, and so that's like by putting in this fake Buddha quote at the beginning, it's like, see, this is something that's been around forever. And it's <laughs> like... Yeah. And it's this great weird little thing. He 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 did a similar thing with uh, the samurai, where, but it's a um, fake quote accredited to uh, the book of Bushido, so like tying it in with the samurai stuff there. So I guess it's just an opportunity to ref- to kind of ruminate on something bigger than a genre film. Yeah, film. and I think by have opening his film with that, it's very much kind of setting up like this is not Rafifi, but this is not what I'm doing. I'm not just doing another heist film. There's something else happening here. Yeah. Oh, all the main characters are men, and they're all kind of stoic. Yep. Um, and they're all kind of distant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's you. They're they're kind of secretive. I mean, even even the shots. There's not a lot of close-ups. There's a lot of mid shots, mm. and they're all like kind of a lot of them behind the from the vantage point of behind shoulders. And they're all for the most of the film. They're all wearing hats and big trench coats, kind of these layers of like kind of trying to hide themselves off. And yeah. yeah. And so you, yeah, they. You got to really kind of start to start to try and figure out what is the the nature of these men mm-hmm. um, because they don't give much away. 
they don't bother talking much, but there is a kind of all we'll talk about Corey and uh, Vogel. Yep, Vogel. Vogel. Yeah, I, I just Vogel. <laughs> I don't, yeah. yeah, I don't mind. Yeah. They both kind of stoned face all the time, right? Um, but I love the when they're coming together. They just share a cigarette, and they're like, kind of, we're on the exact same page. Yep. There is a trust. There's an honor system at play here. Um, we're both criminals, but there's still a code to be uh, code to be followed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're both completely on the same page. We're really not saying a fucking thing. I love. That's probably my favorite scene in the whole film when yeah. they're out in the muddy field. The shot choices there are so interesting and weird mm. <laughs> and great. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic, and I loved how. Uh, and they don't meet until maybe the third way, third of third way through the film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of around like the forty-minute mark or so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Corey, who's in the car from the vantage point of the lens, he's always traveling from right to left, mm-hmm. and then Vogel, who's on the run, is always traveling from the from the left to right, and so they they meet together. I think. It's just kind of shit like that where there's a lot of filmic techniques and, and artistry yep. um, that just puts it above, you know, your, your Ocean's Eleven, a great movie, but it's, you know, the, what, what makes that a strong film is the acting and the script. Yeah, and, and the character, but that's like, and the characters are all great in that film, but it's, again, focused predominantly on the heist, not necessarily the character, like, you know, the nature of the people pulling off the heist, I mm. guess. Um, on that note of like the the directions of the camera and things, it's so you can't help but notice watching this like the film the camera is so seldom static, like it, it, it's so rare that you would actually just see a flat static shot where the camera is either not panning, zooming, tilting, like it, it, there's no movement. It's just a static camera, and it's only really sort of in the heist scene where that happens. Like, even when it's the, um, uh, God, what's his name? The police detective hunting down Vogel. Um, Mathieu. Like, when he's meeting with the internal affairs guy, the camera's just kind of subtly floating and things, like... In that room when they're first kind of figuring out what they're going to do, how they're going to deal with this this, uh, rogue criminal. Mm. I actually thought that was really off-putting. Yeah. The, The camera movement was was floating through the room I was like what like why and what and how I kind of want to focus on what they're talking about not so much what the fuck the camera is doing Mm. but But by doing that he's continually telling you like regardless of if we're sitting down and talking we're perpetually in motion and we're perpetually kind of flying forward and it gives you a sense of urgency and a ticking clock without there being so evidently a ticking clock Mm. it's so fucking good (laughs) well the high sequences uh, let's talk about ticking clocks yep um, I think uh, the premise, the heist premise for a film is one of the perfect film premises. Mm-hmm. Premise I. I'm going to use that word. <laughs> it's not a word, but anyway. if, it, if it's not a word, yeah. yeah. Uh, because. Premise E? Premise E? I don't give a fuck. Yeah. Uh, because the heist, by definition, is a quiet thing. Uh, you have to use every single tool at your disposal to tell the story visually. Yeah. You need to. Um, be very minimalist with your noise because there's silence and even remember like when they're cutting a hole through the glass and it's just like the scratches yeah there's no noise it's just the scratch is just the most intense thing you're like oh fucking hell man this yeah is, it's kind of loud and then when they put the suction cup on and they slowly yeah and plus you need to have a great understanding of the three-dimensional space yes so your editing needs to be fucking tight and let everybody know exactly where everybody else is in relation you know where's, where's the security guard in relation to 
um, to the criminals and whatnot, and where's the bank vault or whatever, the vault uh, in relation to everybody else. Um, so you, it's just perfect for film. Yeah. Uh, and it's, like you said there, with like the, the setting up of the... Of the the kind of layout of what we're doing like he so brilliantly does that like it's like in most heist films you have the casing of the joint but that is done bizarrely very tight like it doesn't give you a wide shot of like panning like this is what we're robbing instead it's focusing on um uh eves montan's character like as he's going and casing the joint it's all very tight and closed and it's looking at the intricate details of what they're gonna have to overcome not the big scheme of where they're robbing and what they're robbing but it's the minutiae of there's the keyhole, there the, there's where the wires are, here's where this is. Mm. And it's when um, it's the night of the robbery when it's the, um, the manager and the security guard shutting down for the, di- for the night, turning on the system. That's where we find, okay, this is our geographical locations and where we are and what we're going to be doing. Yeah, but also on the ticking clocks. Yes, sorry. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I just derailed that one, sorry. <laughs> Well, I'm just going to talk about the the, the sound effects because you do have the scratching of the glass and shit. Mm-hmm. And the whole sequence, no one's talking, but there is this constant ticking of a clock. Some, every single room has a ticking clock. The mm-hmm. security guard's office, um, uh, and obviously like the the display cabinetry place. Um, and so I think there's such restraint with the sound design, but it is so fucking effective. And this is across the board with all heist movies. Mm-hmm. Rafifi was exactly the same. Yes. Um, Ocean's Eleven, Mission Impossible One. Yes, that's wait, a great it's, scene. He's got to get the knock list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great scene because of the silence. Toast, yeah, toast. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's so effective, and and you're not going to get a better medium for that kind of story mm. um, other than film. Comic books can't do it. Books can't do it better. It, it, There's it's, no other medium. It's essentially capitalizing on everything that film has to offer: visual storytelling, utilizing editing and audio, and it, it's just like yeah. It's Superb. If you want to essentially flex on being like, look at how good a filmmaker I am, make a heist movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic genre film. I think that's why Edgar Wright did it with Baby Driver. And see, he loves his genre movies. Yeah, so. see, Baby Driver, like, if we're, if we're getting into all this stuff now, like, we were thinking this would be a good po- episode to kind of discuss heist films in general and was looking up a bunch of the greatest heist movies. I don't consider Baby Driver a heist movie. Well, it's like a... There's sequences of heists in it. Yeah, but the central plot isn't revolving around a heist. No, okay. but uh, Well, that's, that's fair. But I will say that there's a kind of film language um, that you can utilise during a heist movie. Even if it's yes. not, even if it's not the, a heist film. Yeah, yeah, I, I, get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Yes. And you have to rely on, as we're talking about, you know, this incredible sound design and um, trying to navigate a three-dimensional space and display it properly for the audience to, to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, this film doesn't really have a planning stage. It kind of does. They, I mean... The, the planning is essentially them gathering the... the th- all the three of them deciding to do this together. That's the planning, and that's all you need to know. Essentially, it, it's... Again, like, jumping back to what I was saying before, it's not about how they're pulling off the heist, but it's who the people pulling off the heist are. Mm-hmm. That's what it, he's kind of leaning into. Mm. All right, well, let's, let's go through the characters then. Mm. So, Corey, played by uh, Elaine DeLong, possibly one of the coolest actors of the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the thing about this film. Like, I've seen it a couple of times before. It is, and it's just, by the time they get to Paris, 
And like you just you sit there with a smile on your face, just being like, "Man, this film is just so fucking cool." It's fucking cool. <laughs> it's just yeah. fucking cool. Uh, and I think that is because of uh, Alain Delon as Corey. Like his, it is the most quintessential kind of cool gangstery friend. Like he's never not smoking. It seems <laughs> like he's That's just right. very. And he's got the mustache, and he's just kind of always glaring. He's got, like, resting bitch face. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's just always looking angry and just... Cut, or intense and smoldering and... And he's... Soft-spoken and seems so in charge of whatever situation he's in. Like, when he first gets out of prison and he goes to visit his old boss. Yeah. It's just... There is no point in that where he is on a back foot. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's the pool... The pool sequence. Yep. Which just bashes the fuck out of the two goons. Yep. There's the sequences where he's trying to get past the um, um, the police blockades. Yep. You know, yeah, he's just fucking cool. Yeah, at no point, yeah. He's just always one, seemingly one step ahead of everyone. And I think um, my personal favourite sequence was when he was totally cool. He just, uh, he just made friends with Vogel. Vogel gets back in the trunk after they smoke a, a cool cigarette. And... Uh, then he gets picked up by um, these other two uh, mob goons. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, and they, they pull him out of the car ready to shoot him dead. Yeah. And he knows fully well and that Vogel will come and get him because yeah. there's this code thing, right? Yeah. Um, and they've only smoked a cigarette and said, you know... But he's helped Paris, out and so now he knows he's going to help Really, him. All they've said together is just like, here's a cigarette. And Paris is your Paris best is bet. Your best bet. Yeah. And they're already completely on the same page and he knows I'm just going to get out of the car. I'll just stand here. Vogel will come out and he's going to fuck these guys up. Yeah, these guys don't know what they've gotten themselves into. Yeah. And, and, and cool as fuck, like, off camera, it's just like, put your fucking hands up. Yep. And then he just <laughs> takes their guns and shoots them to both. Yeah, in... A, in I, I would hesitate... I'm kind of hesitant to say this, but, like, in... Any other filmmaker would take an opportunity of, like, when they tell Corey, like, turn around and, like, he's got his hands up to cut in for a close-up of him, like, smirking or something. But no, like, he... Melville keeps it on a wide... And at no point does Corey, like, even smirk or wink or do anything. He's just, like, cool as a fucking cucumber. <laughs> they, they know each other all, so well already. It's just... The, cool is the perfect word for it. Yeah. You know, they're just cool. Mm. And this is what I mean. Like, it's, it's Melville kind of doing the epitome of everything he's done in film, like, leading up to this. Like, he is... Prior to this, uh, with Le Samurai, also with Alain Delon, it's sort of like you're creating a super fucking hip movie there. And this somehow eclipses that even. <laughs> and it, it is taking as well those elements of like the heist aspect that he did with Bob Flambeau, And he's just like, I can do better. <laughs> I can make this way cooler. <laughs> yeah. But do you, I got a question for you. Do you think the film uh, is too long? I mean, it's got very cool scenes, but do you think it's too long? Um, I think it's... I think post heist, you could wrap that up a little bit quicker, like trim maybe five to ten minutes out of the tail end of the heist stuff. Um, everything leading up to the heist, I adore. Mm-hmm. Like, that's... I would not trim anything from that first, like, first two-thirds. It would just be afterwards where you know... Like, it's almost like the subplot of where they um take... The police take in uh, Santi's uh, son to try and kind of lean on him and stuff. Like, all of that stuff is like... Santi being the, the mob boss. Yeah. And you're just like, wait, why did that 
happen like that's fucked up but again saying that that all leans into the whole idea of they're all born innocent but it doesn't last and it's yeah, showing you need, you need that. yeah you need that stuff like that's what i mean there's nothing really true and that's all yeah you're you're all i mean because it was, it's a, it was a ruse the the uh the police detective what sorry what was his name again i'm matei matei i mean he just he just thought well I'll, I'll just pretend that this mob boss's son has was caught with marijuana because it's going to bring the bomb boss in and we can kind of use it as leverage. Yeah, we can lean on him and then get him to... Yeah. And the kid had actually had marijuana and killed himself. Oh, yeah, it tried to kill himself. Tried yeah. to kill himself. Um, so, yeah, you definitely need that, that situation where it's like, yeah, it's everyone's nature to be bad. Yeah, even even that, if that you think it's... kid had already become bad. You know? Yeah, and it's even the police detective who has the cleanest record and the best arrest record for 15 years of the force... He's like the be- He's like you know the greatest detective ever. He's Poirot times twenty. <laughs> he, even he who thinks he's totally clean is discovers at the end, and that's like the final end of the film. Like born innocent, like is what the IA guy says to him, and it's just like oh yeah, <laughs> like it's goddamn it. I thought I was good, but like I am just as corrupt in my own kind of way mm. to kind of get what I want. <laughs> beautiful <laughs> yeah and <clears throat> yeah so uh, i was just thinking about that you know the kid got caught with marijuana but it's not that bad no i mean it was like by modern standards it's also the like, 70 like yeah like that's the thing it's not a big deal but like he was what 15 like he didn't know <laughs> i mean i guess it's, it's against the law isn't it yeah um <laughs> but yeah I, wanting to go back to kind of Corey as a character just kind of wrap him up mm-hmm. i find it so interesting that he it's like I, I was saying he's a character who is continually uh, never on the back foot. Like, he's always in charge and ahead of the situations until the final scene, and which eventually leads to his and everyone else's downfall. Is that... Do you think that comes out of... Like, the downfall is a result of his cockiness and him continually having that attitude of I am better and I am smarter and I, I know these situations he becomes overconfident and that leads to the downfall or do you think it's just a well so it was doomed to fail from the get-go so basically the um the police officer is the the is acting as the fence the guy that that will sell the stolen goods Mm -hmm. um and it's kind of more or less like an entrapment situation Mm -hmm. uh i kind of didn't understand that because apparently vogel knew that it was a big setup and he didn't bother telling Corey because Corey wouldn't... I, I, he said I, that Corey wouldn't run if I did tell him that that was actually the cop and we were going to sell to the cop. Like, yeah. Corey needed to see needed to see that it was the cop and then run. Yeah. And, I mean, Vogel made the call knowing full well that he'd probably get caught up in it and get ki- and shot. And get killed, yeah. Um, so what Well, yeah, because he wanted to go with him from the get-go and, yeah. What was that saying? So I think, like, that's a nod to the whole... That's in Corey's nature. He's not going to run until he... And that, like that, that assuredness. Until he has to. Yeah, that assuredness of his character is what eventually leads to his downfall. They just had a deep understanding, I think, Vogel and and Corey, because yeah. he's like, as he says, like, I'm not going to bother telling telling Corey that we're going to end up selling to the the cop and fuck everything up because he's not going to listen. I'm not going to listen. So yeah, I, I don't even bother bringing it up. Um, mm, it's yeah, but then I don't know why. Yeah, I don't. That, that was something that, you know, I was watching it at the end, and I was just like, why the fuck wouldn't you do that? It, ju- it just kind of, 
ends and I, I mean uh, the understanding of like why he wouldn't do it like it's there in the lines where he said like he wouldn't have run even if I told him it's and it's just he's so I, I think it does fall back on that like cockiness and that his, the understanding of who Corey is as a character and that he it's it's like this is how it had to go down mm. and it's just a bummer that it did for them <laughs> well isn't it um I don't know if this is the case nowadays, but uh, there's like the old rating system where you're not allowed, um, you're not allowed to have the bad guys get away with it. No, not in the se- not not at this time. Not in the seventies. No, no. Okay, so they kind of passed that because I know that like in the forties and fifties and shit. Yeah, you, you know, it had to be you had to get caught or like you know the Italian job. Yeah, from the sixties, mm. they weren't allowed to show the bad guys getting away with it, even though they were the protagonists and you were rooting for them. Yeah. They had yeah. to leave it on a cliffhanger of like, literally, where it's like- <laughs> Yeah, good call. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it took me a second, I was like, oh yeah, yeah that one. Like literally a cliffhanger that ends. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, they're not gonna get away with it. Yeah. So, I mean, that, and that was ratings. It was like, you, you can't release a movie where the, good, the bad guys get away with it. Oh yeah, no, that's, that's definitely passed by 1970 here. Like, I mean, shit, we're what? Uh, a year or two years away from Clockwork Orange being in cinemas? Like, that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. That got banned the fuck in this country, like. As well as, oh no, not in the UK, it didn't, no, but, um. And I mean, the, another one that's obviously been drawing a lot of parallels at the moment because of um, the upcoming Joker film, but like, and I mean, I'm jumping ahead here like th- three to four years with Taxi Driver mm-hmm. being like, it's essentially you're following an absolutely reprehensible character who ends up becoming a national hero at the end because people didn't know what he was actually like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And the, that film literally ends with the villain, your anti-hero, being praised by a dumb media. <laughs> but yeah, so that the whole idea of having, yeah, that, I don't think that's what that that's an implication here of not being able to let the bad guys win because essentially, as well, like the good guy loses as well because he has the revelation of his moral high ground is totally corrupt. And he's not who he thought he was, mm. which is almost a more devastating blow to him as a character than it is for Corey to eventually be shot trying to pull off a $20 million jewel heist. Yeah. Like, Corey was never... That's what's interesting, actually. No... Very few characters actually go through an arc in this film other than Matei. That's right. Uh, the, uh, Jesper? What's, fuck, what's his name? Jansen. Jansen. He's Montanda, yes. He's got, kind of got an arc. He's got a little bit, yeah, where he... Yeah. He's an alcoholic and he's going to do this job, not for really the money, but for kind of some kind of personal redemption. Thing. Yes, yes. So there's a bit of an arc there as well. Mm. Uh, he was great. That, that fucking sequence, the, the, <laughs> the kind dream, of dream se- sequence. Yeah, I was waiting for you to bring that the up. The animals and stuff. That, yeah. was, that was very colourful. The weird spider puppets. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were scary. It's so cool. Yeah, Claire walked in while I was watching, while that scene was on and was like, what the fuck is going on? I'm like, snakes and spiders and boogans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't have guessed that that was going to be in this movie. Yeah. Um, but that's what I mean. Like, it's... Th- those kind of elements are super fucking cool and really weird and kind of out of left field. And there's a lot of... Seemingly a lot of moments like that as well that happen where it's, it's either a bizarre dream sequence that's just, like, just happens and it's like, yep, that, that happened. Uh, and it came out of nowhere. Or there's, like, bizarre camera moves, like... When it were there in the field after sharing a cigarette, um, Corey and Vogel, and it does like mid shots of them looking directly into camera, and then it just comes to a wide shot that's like mid pan already. You're like, that's kind of weird and jarring, and mm. but just kind of 
cool and works really well. Yeah. Or like when they're trying, it's, when they're cutting the glass, all of a sudden it just cuts to a floating shot, looking at the ceiling, slowly panning down. It's there's like, a lot of, I guess you could almost say they're kind of, it's approaching a surrealism. Yeah. Or dream, dreamlike stuff because and there's it, like the secret, the top, the top down shot of the billiard table. Yeah, which is gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of abstract, but. And oh, and when Corey goes to meet the fence, and it's like see, the camera pans up from the bag and kind of full body shot on him, cuts back to Vogel in the room, and then it like repeats the same shot again. It's, I it I it has to be Melville because he obviously started making films pre the French New Wave stuff that happened sort of in the early '60s, and so this is him seeing being a more kind of classic traditionalist filmmaker, like with popular flambeau and things, which is very cool and stylish, but it's traditional. Yeah. And then seeing all the stuff that Godard and Truffaut and things are doing, he's able to be like, oh, cool. I'm, I, yeah, these guys are really expressing what you can do with the film. With film, I'm going to meld and start throwing in those kind of weird elements into my stuff. And yeah, it sets this film It just apart. makes it even better. <laughs> yeah, it sets this film apart from all the other heist films I've ever mm. seen, for sure. Which is where I liken it to some of the Tarantino stuff, where you have, like, weird little flourish shots and moments where you're like, huh, that's kind of weird. Why did that happen? There, Okay, moving on. Yeah. And it just kind of adds to the coolness of it all. Yeah. Mystery. Yeah. Intrigue. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. Uh, well, shit, I don't actually... I think I've fucking covered off everything. Sounds and noise. Oh, can we talk about the music? Yes, we can talk about the music. I, I got a real sense of... I love. There are two sequences in particular where I love, 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 love the music in this film. Um, and it's not the cabaret scenes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, oh my God, when that second cabaret scene with the African dancers, when it started with the bongos, I was just waiting for like the mask to jump out. <laughs> it's like that... Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> It was really that. Um, <laughs> but it's the... When Vogel is still on the run from the cops and it's just that kind of almost whirring intensity music that just keeps heightening and heightening and heightening as the giant surge party. And also fucking the scale and the scope of yeah. the extras and the shots in that, that sequence. That was, that was quite an epic sequence. Mm, and then when he's crossing the river and you never get a sense of how close they are to him with except for the music. Mm-hmm. The music gives you a sense of they are closing in on him and that's why he's becoming frantic. You don't geographically like see the dogs and the, the search parties going over areas that he's been before. It's just... Well, they, you do somewhat because you're shifting from fields yeah. to overgrowth to... But you never see him running through the fields. That's what no, I'm meaning. Like, yeah, it's, it's like the only thing that's kind of letting you know that they are closing in on him and how fast they're getting is this <coughs> wonderful soundtrack of just this kind of slow intensifying and it's drumming as well it's I'm like oh this is like out of whiplash here uh-huh. <laughs> like we're just getting better and better and then it's the heist sequence mm-hmm. it's it's the lead up to the heist when they're shutting down the the jewelry store for the night and it's the turning off the light systems and you have it's punctuated with a trumpet noise yes. or like a piano noise it's yeah and yes, then I remember f- that that was Highly stylized, just wonderful little flourish. And then the final one, it, it's um, uh, what's uh, Jensen lighting the match to make the bullets to fix the uh, the alarm system. It's like, oh wow! So what you're tying through music, like you're using that as the stylistic cut from the vault to the guys getting all their gear ready. Like wonderful. Mm. And then the actual high sequence itself had that kind of very a melodic 
tonal music that I was like, this is like out of there will be blood stuff here. Where it's just that kind of like, like that building kind of just <laughs> noise that kind of puts you on edge and makes you tense. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And together with the, the, the tick-tocking of the clocks, it's mm-hmm. fucking great. Yeah. Um, yeah, that bullet. That bullet's kind of cool. Uh, I was thinking about that. Um, I mean, it doesn't really... We're talking about like the kind of lack of the planning sequence in the film. It kind of just skips over. I mean, he's obviously making something. Yeah. It is obviously a bullet. And you get the wipes of him. Like it's yeah. just like it's not important what he's actually. And then later on, they tell you that it's an alloy that's designed specifically to fuck up mm. the, to unlock the vault. Yeah. Um, and I do love that he has it so perfectly set up with the tripod, and then takes the rifle off because he's like, "No, I got to do this myself." Like as his <laughs> to com- kind of complete his arc, he has to do it yeah. freehand. Yeah, that was fine. Uh, yeah. Like, half of me was thinking, what a fucking show-off. Yeah. But the other half was like, oh, no, no, he wants the root, you know. It, it, all, it all adds into the character stuff with him. And I like that he pulls out his flask and has the sniff as a reward. He can't drink, but he can sniff. Yes. <laughs> Which is great. Um, but, yeah, that, that, that bullet, I think, I think you, you can see, was it the jackal that also had that, the kind of custom bullets? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So makes adds to the badassery. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, this this film it's an odd heist film in that it's there's there exists a 90 minute cut. Mm, yes. Uh well, I think it's a 100, 101 minute cut. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, there's probably about 40 or 50 minutes cut from this version, the actual version, I suppose. Yes. Um and I'm kind of intrigued to watch that because... Just to see what they omit, or...? Yeah, well, to just to see, like, an exercise in, in pacing, you know? Yeah, okay. Because when you're watching a heist film, the pacing's really important because of the tension and whatever. Um, and I'd imagine that it'd be way more mainstream, if you want to call it that. And I'd be, I'd be interested in seeing the difference if you took out 40 minutes of Melville-esque, you know... Mm. I guarantee you to be all out from the, the front end of the film and it's like we've got to get to the heist as soon as we possibly can because yeah. that's what apparently people want to see <laughs> yeah but then but we both of our favourite sequences weren't the heist exactly I, I don't give a shit about the heist sequence in this I in fact think it's kind of a subpar Rafifi when it comes to the actual heist itself I think the, yeah the important oh shit chef Fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think the important part about the high sequence, the most important part, is the fact that they don't talk. Yes. Everybody is... It's 27 minutes of silence. Yeah. Or e- like no dialogue. Yeah. They're professionals, and they're all on the same page to the point where... I mean, even uh, the cop at the end is like, they're fucking not speaking. They can't do anything with this footage. Yep. I love that as well. He's just like, well, they're not much for talking. Yeah. <laughs> like, they all have a completely... They're all have a 100% understanding between what they are, what they can do. Yeah. And that's why the heist worked. Which just wraps around and adds to the absolute coolness of this film. <laughs> um, we teased it before. Uh, let's get into a full-on discussion about heist films. Okay. To kind of wrap this one up, I think. Um, this is probably... I think this is the third heist film, I would say, we've done in the collection. Yeah, uh, after Flambeur and Rafifi and this. Yeah, yeah. For a second, when I was thinking about that, I'm like, ooh, Latrell, and I'm like, no, that's Prison Escape. That's not <laughs> a heist one, that one. But it's got similar properties. It, exactly, that's because it, Because of yeah. the language, the same language you use. Yes, yes. Um, but I, and I did, yeah. 
I did a bit of um, kind of looking around at, like what are considered some of the best heist films ever, and this is usually fairly up there on the list. Uh, the majority of lists rank Rafifi as number one, yeah. uh, which I would probably agree with. Me too. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what are some of the kind of standouts for you? Well, I like... I Or what makes a good heist film for you? Like, what, what do you think are the, the kind of key elements to kind of get you into one? And why it's a good genre to keep going back to? I always come back to, to sound design. Mm-hmm. I think sound design... Let's take... Here's a heist movie that we can compare and contrast to. Rogue One. Right? <laughs> oh my god, that is a heist movie. I don't want to talk about Star Wars that much, but um, <laughs> oh but Rogue god. One is really interesting because it's a heist movie, but didn't use the language of a heist movie. Right? No. And it, and I was just like, I was thinking, you didn't take advantage of of what film can do for heists. Yeah. You wanted to make you call it a heist movie because they have to get the thing. Yeah. But then you end up doing like some really bombastic, loud action set pieces. Make right? a Star Wars movie. Yeah, and so you've so the producers making the movie, they just missed out on this wonderful opportunity. And I think, could you imagine if Rogue One was like Ocean's Eleven, but in the Star Wars universe? Yeah, or like no, I want like a Star Wars Rafifi. Yeah, <laughs> that's just a half an hour of like them just trying to get to the center of the Death Star. <laughs> could you imagine if they like made a Star Wars film where it's just like, hey, everyone. There's going to be no dialogue for like 27 minutes right in the middle of this Star Wars movie. <laughs> they said they want to do different shit. Disney would be so upset. They said they want to do different shit, but they, they couldn't. They didn't. They're too scared to. Yeah. Uh, they call it a heist movie and, and it lacks um, the, the minimalist noise to build tension. Uh, it lacks any kind of trying to figure out uh, three-dimensional space and have an understanding of where everybody is in relation to everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's it, like, while the heist is going on, there's a fucking battle scene happening outside that we have to keep cutting back to. Yeah, and, and so... I mean, Never cut away from a heist scene. No. Like, <laughs> you immediately deflate any tension you've built up when you're just like, we'll check back in on that later. <laughs> like, what are our other characters up to? You're like, no, this is what's important. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Uh, so, I mean, it does illustrate how... Um, how... It's... It's so easy to make even just the most bullshit heist script into something exciting because yeah. just the heist just lends it so well so itself so well to to sound design and visuals whatever mm-hmm. um so i think i think i've covered off on that that's it's really to me it's the sound design yeah that's what builds attention that's what makes it so exciting pacing as well i would say pacing mm-hmm. and, and the editing mm-hmm. it's yeah like we said earlier it, it's the kind of a high scene is the best way to kind of show off what you can do with film. Mm-hmm. Like, it is using every aspect of the cinema language. And also, um, with the trying to figure out the three-dimensional space, we were talking about earlier the usual suspects off, off mic. Because, mm. yeah, that, that popped up on a bunch of the lists that I saw saying, considering that a heist film, and I don't consider that a heist film. And we were kind of debating this. Yeah, well, well it is. I'm very strict on what I consider a heist film, it turns out. <laughs> Well, the job is to go into a boat and retrieve um, some dope. Mm. It's not actually that, but um, in terms of the sequence and how you film it and how you present it, it is a heist. But it turns out it's not actually a heist. Yeah. It, it's, it's a double cross. And that, it's, it's the reuse of the same positions of shots. Uh, I mean, 
let's just call that, a, I'm, I'm going to call that a heist film because it's presented okay. in, in, in that way. Um, but yeah, you know at the start of that movie where it's got that really great shot of the, the rope kind of piled up mm-hmm. um, and there's the explosion that goes off but you don't see the explosion and it's just, this shot is just kind of burnt into your memory. It makes you, th- and then you, from that you cut to the one survivor. So it just, you're automatically making the link in your head of there's someone hiding behind there watching. Mm. And they're, they're re- retelling, I mean, he's, uh, they're constantly coming back to the same shots. So you wouldn't present the same location uh, from a different perspective in a heist film because you want the, the audience to be completely familiar with the layout. Yeah. They do the same thing in Notions 11. They do, they do that pretty much with every heist film. I think it would be silly not to. Um, so there, there's another big dick. Yep. I love the fact that you can, you can always just return. There's just a, a really simple language that is just so fucking effective. Yeah. Um, but what do you, what do you reckon uh, in terms of what would be, what was the question you asked me? Oh, just kind of what, what do you think makes a heist film and what are some examples of good ones? Oh, okay. And yeah, what's, so th- what's yours? Uh, in terms of like some good ones. Yeah. I still, I really rate uh, Ocean's Eleven, the, uh, the Soderbergh one. I, 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 I'm not a fan of the original Dean Martin. Want, like, oh, yeah. that Rat Pack one. Yeah, it's not great. Um, but I think... Uh, Soderbergh's great with what he does in Ocean's Eleven. I think that's a damn near perfect heist film. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Sting is also a wonderful heist. Or oh, is that like this is where I like kind of muddy the words. I'm like, is that a con or a heist? And where do you separate the two? <laughs> like, yeah. it's a con. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really a heist. Yeah, but <clears throat> I think I get mu- I get confused there because Ocean's Eleven is a heist with con aspects. So that's where it's like, yeah. But um, yeah. I know, and yeah, obviously, like, things like Rafifi and Le Cirque Rouge, um, yeah. yeah. Ocean's Eleven is the most rewatchable heist movie of all time. That's why from, from yeah, television di- every goddamn second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in, t- in particular, like a modern heist film, I can't. I, I really struggle to think of a good one. Uh, maybe Snatch. Snatch is pretty fun. Yeah, Lockstock. Uh, Sexy Beast is a brilliant heist film, mm. even though like fifty percent of that film is trying to convince someone to come back and do the heist. Yeah. Like yeah. That's well, a great one. But the heist films are just peppered throughout yeah. the entirety of film history, dating back to fucking, what's that, the Great Train Robbery? In- <laughs> yeah, which was like 1912, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it just seems... It is a staple of cinema. Yeah. Uh, every couple of years, every three or four to five years, you're going to always have like a really excellent heist movie because someone realises, fuck, That's this a- shit's going to make a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> there is a- hasn't been one of these for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um... Yeah, Le Cirque Rouge, fucking brilliant, super cool, highly enjoyable, pulpy crime film from the 70s. Just absolutely, re- infinitely rewatchable. I think this was like the fourth or fifth time I've seen it. I, I just dig the shit out of this movie. Mm. I really do. It's, it's, it's one in the collection that is just... It's, we see a lot of movies that we're like, yeah, that's really good. But it's not a, I will go back and rewatch that soon. This is one where you can easily, I think, jump back in and rewatch. Well, I think that the benefit is it kind of it's from both of the worlds of, you know, it's a exciting, entertaining flick, but yep. it's also got a supreme amount of artistry as well. So yes, you can kind of get the best of both worlds. Yeah, returning. Mm. It's fucking pretty great, man. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, do you want to hear a little bit of trivia? Some of the stuff that I haven't already brought up. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yep, I've mentioned that. I've mentioned that. I've mentioned that. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I mean, yeah, that, that's about it. Real, I actually don't have much left. I found it interesting uh, that Roger Ebert gave it four out of four, but it's not in his great movies list. Well, that was interesting. He gave it like a perfect review, but it's not in that list of great movies. Is that his... If it's in the great movies, does he need to give it? Like No. Just uh, because, so it's, there's this, So what I'm saying is, if he gives something four stars, it doesn't automatically go into his great movies. No. Nope. Even though he's given it uh, a perfect 100%. review. Yeah. Yeah. I found that interesting. I, I hadn't kind of ever seen that before. Yeah, I, I would say, yeah, it is fucking cool, but there, I would admit that there are sections which I would get bored at. Mm-hmm. Uh, it kind of lingers too long. Okay, fair call. And that's only bad when it's, you can't pick up... The nuance of what he's doing, I guess. Well, you can't pick up the... Uh, you can have shots of, like, really long shots of people driving around, and if it doesn't mean anything, it's like... Yeah. Why the fuck am I watching this section? Why is this here? You sound like everyone else complaining about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> no, that had a point. Exactly, that's what I mean. But people didn't get that it had a point. Brad Pitt lives fucking really outside Hollywood. Yeah. And so that had a point. And so you're, while I was sitting there going like, geez, this is dragging on. But slowly sinking in, like, fuck, this guy lives outside of Hollywood. Yep. And he is very di- removed and disconnected and yep. on the outskirts of My the point industry. is... He's literally on the outskirts of Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> it's an artistic choice to yes. have that long sequence. <laughs> yeah. But if you just have it watching a car for no fucking reason... It's not masturbatory. It's, it has a point, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, this is near perfect for me. Okay. Like I said, we're, it's, like a, it's another great entry in the continual run we're on at the moment of fucking great movies in the collection. We are, we are doing well. Yeah. I, I told you, it's like... Because we had a little bit of a lull early on in the 200s, and I was like, just just stick with it. We've like, we got, we got some gold coming up. Yeah. There's gold in them hills. <laughs> every single one we've watched for the last three or four or five. It's yeah. fucking great. And it's, uh, it's going to continue on with uh, what we're doing next episode, which is Fellini's La Strada. Okay. Arguably one of his absolute classics. So... Yeah, well, I haven't seen it myself. Mm-hmm. I knew this was kind of early on, so I said I'd just wait. Yep. So I'm excited that I like Fellini a lot. Yeah, so this will be uh, good to... I have not seen it for probably about 10 years, so I barely remember it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm very, very excited to rewatch. So I guess uh, tune in in a fortnight's time for that episode. Uh, otherwise, if you have any comments or queries, you can send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at CriterionQuest. But yeah, we'll, we'll be back with some Fellini for our next episode. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone. For this week, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time.